You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 62nd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Facebook or Instagram. This interview was recorded in January, but is only posted now. In today's episode, I will be speaking with a choice theory practitioner and counselor in Australia, Jeff Steedman, who has recently undergone surgery for prostate cancer. He leaned into choice theory from his diagnosis until now, and I wanted him to share the power of choice theory with my audience. I know you'll enjoy hearing what Jeff has to say. Jeff has been a counselor, teacher, and consultant for over 30 years. He's CEO of Choice Practice Institute, choicetheory.org, owner of Riviera Counseling Service, and faculty member of William Glasser International. Jeff has devoted his life to helping people in all walks of life take charge of their lives. He lives and breathes choice theory, I know that for sure, using it in his personal life, as well as delivering training and development in schools, businesses, and organizations. I'm really happy to have him here, and I can't wait for him to talk with me about stuff that I know will help some of the listeners. So Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for the invitation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, Kim. Great. One of the things I know, I became aware of you you can tell me how many years ago it was, but you were writing on Facebook about having prostate cancer. And I knew you were a choice theory person because I think I found it on the choice theory fan club page on Facebook, but I didn't really know who you were, but I definitely reached out with some positive thoughts during that time. As you know, my husband passed away with cancer. So, you know, I've been through something similar and I worried about you and then you were fine. <laughs> And recently, you weren't so fine. So how did you find out that you had the potential for prostate cancer in the first place? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because um, for males, uh, the issue of prostate enlargement and uh, problems with the prostate are almost certain if you live long enough, you're going to have some issues with, with prostate. Usually it's enlarged and it's benign. Since I turned 50, I'm, I'm now 66, but uh, from the time I turn 50, I have an annual checkup. And part of that annual checkup is to have what's called a PSA measurement. And uh, it's just taken as part of your normal blood bloods that you give. And PSA is prostate-specific antigen. For most people, that will be fairly low, somewhere around 2, 2.5 or lower. And that shows that your prostate is operating fairly well. Um, there's no real problems. For all those years, mine stayed around the 2, 2.5 level. But suddenly this year, it jumped up to 8.5. Um, mm. So that was in August of this year because that's when my birthday is and uh, I've tagged checking my prostate uh, plus my cholesterol and all those other things that bloods tell us around my birthday so that I remember to do it and do it regularly. So really, that was the initial sign. It was just an, an increased PSA level which may or may not mean anything too, uh, too dramatic. It is interesting, though, Kim, that um, I had no other signs. Uh, mm. there, you know, some of the problems that people can get when their prostate enlarges 
includes lots of having to go to the toilet during the night or urgency during the day or feelings of discomfort. I, I had no signs, just the regular checkup. So the takeaway for that, for every man that hears this and every woman that has a man in their life they care about is get your PSA check every single year. That's great. I'm really interested in how you managed yourself when you get this diagnosis, right? You told me that you had a elevated PSA level and then you had a biopsy with a Gleason score of nine. I don't even know what a Gleason score is. So maybe you could start there and um, tell us how you managed yourself when you got that news. Yep. So the, the first thing was I, I knew that an enlarged, oh, sorry, a, an elevated PSA didn't necessarily mean cancer. In fact, for most people, it won't mean cancer. It'll just mean you have an enlarged prostate, which needs to be cared for. So I wasn't overly concerned. Um, I, I always like to deal with information rather than what ifs. What ifs, the more you deal with what ifs, the more gray hair you get. And I've got enough of that already. So <laughs> I don't need to be chasing any what-ifs, Kim. So my initial reaction, I prefer to say learned action because it's just learned behaviour, was to go, okay, I've got an elevated PSA. What do I want to do about it? And what I decided to do about it in conjunction with the doctor, my GP, was to have a biopsy. Biopsy is a fairly invasive process for, for prostate because they punch I think something like 30 to 40 holes in the prostate. Oh. Um, so with a needle and they just punch them through all across the prostate. It doesn't hurt in and of itself. You're under an anesthetic, but it obviously is, uh, leads to damage to the prostate, but it's the only way they can actually tell if there are cancerous cells in there. So I made the decision to have the biopsy. When the results came back from the biopsy, it showed there was cancer in the prostate. The next issue is, well, what does that look like? And they have a scale. It's called the, the Gleason scale, which you mentioned. And the Gleason scale goes basically from zero up to 10. Although nowadays they, they basically think if it's 2.53 thereabouts, they don't worry about it. They just say it's insignificant. Anything above that then becomes concerning. And uh, there's probably three levels within there. But if you get to a Gleason 10, what that is, is that the prostate ha has um, released the cancer cells. They've escaped from the prostate and they're in the cells surrounding the prostate. And that, that is as bad as it gets. So mine was a nine. So it's right up there as, as almost as serious as you can. There was no evidence that it had escaped the encapsulation of the prostate, but it was right throughout the prostate. And usually with a nine, it means it's on both sides of the prostate all the way through it. And you need to do something pretty urgently. So how did I, how did I manage that? It was more information. I just thought to myself, okay, I, I can't do anything about that. I now have the information that I'm a Gleason nine. I know that means that uh, there's imminent chance of the, of the cancer escaping the prostate and moving into the body. So... I need to look at my options. So the first thing I did was research. Basically three ways that you can deal with it. You can have a surgery, you can have radiation therapy, or you can have chemotherapy or a combination of those. 
that research was about saying to myself, what is my best option here? So I still calm. I, I didn't do a little bit of anxiousing, of course, because you're, you're dealing with potentially a life-threatening illness, a genuine life-threatening illness. And if I did nothing, there's no doubt I would die. So there was a, a little bit of anxiety, but not too much. Um, I like to think of it as the right level of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, Kim, if we have the right level of stress, we perform at our best. And uh, what I was doing was firing on all cylinders and going, okay, I've got this thing. What am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. So that was how I managed it really was with dealing with what's in front of me, step by step, minute by minute, problem by problem, just deal with it, figure out what you need to do and make a decision. That left me in control. That's great. That being in control, especially when there's many things that you can't control is really where the focus needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you chose surgery. Why would you do the, I think you called it robotic prostatectomy. (laughs) I'm sure that's not right. Prostatectomy. (laughs) Rather than, rather than radiation, what led you to your decision? Okay. So as I said before, I gathered the information and what that showed me was a number of options. So if I had radiation therapy there's two types you can have you can have radiation beamed through or targeted at or you can have little radioactive seeds inserted into the prostate net result is the same you have to destroy the prostate you can't destroy the cancer in the prostate without destroying the prostate i'll come back to that in just a minute because it's it's fairly significant whatever course i was going to take if i was going to deal with the cancer i would not have a prostate into the future. When I looked at it, the radiation therapy and chemotherapy could take 12 months, no guarantee that it would work. But the clincher for me, Kim, was not just the long period of time you'd have to go through the debilitating effects of radiation and chemotherapy, but also that if I chose that, I ruled out the option of surgery later. Because once it's been irradiated, they can't operate on it. Mm. If you choose surgery, you can later, uh, if it doesn't work, you can look at having radiation therapy and chemotherapy afterwards. So I figured I want to keep my options as wide as I can. So I'll go for surgery. Also, I have to say, sitting in the back of my mind underneath all of that is, I just want to get this thing out of my body. I don't really want it there. So I'm, I'm pretty happy to go with the surgery option and just have it removed. Why robotic surgery? It's interesting. Um, you can have just traditional prostatectomy, but basically they have to cut through a lot of muscle in your um, lower abdomen to be able to get to the prostate. And it's a big surgery. Robotic prostatectomy is seven small incisions in your abdomen. And uh, it's quite... Uh, It's quite interesting going into the theatre and seeing the robot with its arms and various cutting (laughs) implements uh, hovering above you. But the size of the incisions were like this. You won't see that in the About half an inch. The thing, about, yeah, half an inch in American terms. Very tiny. That doesn't mean that they're not significant because what's cut inside you is is large. There's a lot lot of cutting inside you, but... The outside and through the muscle layer is very small. 
that means much faster recovery. And that's what I was looking for. I wanted to get back and get back into my life and be doing the things that I enjoy doing, like talking to you today, as soon as I possibly could. So I elected for robotic prostatectomy. And it was interesting going into the theatre because the, the surgeon was sitting way, way over on the other side of the room. With, a, huh? a with his little uh, controls, yeah, like, little a, like a video game? And, yeah, exactly. And uh, here I was on the table in the middle with the, the arms looming over me. And I thought, oh, okay, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting stuff. Oh, that was, that it, it could be I terrifying. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it wasn't. Because I'd done my homework and yeah. I knew. I knew that this was the least damaging invasive process that I could have and that it led to the greatest chance of success. The other thing um, that led to my decision is that because my cancer was so advanced, I wasn't going to be able to have nerve-sparing prostatectomy. And basically a nerve-sparing prostatectomy allows you to have better control and possibility of having erections later on in your life. Anybody who has had the surgery won't be, won't be able to have erections for a very long time, if at all. But if you have nerve-sparing surgery, it increases the chances that, that you can have erections. And that being an important part of people's sexual lives, it matters. For me, unfortunately, I couldn't have nerve-sparing prostatectomy, even with the robotic, but I could have minimally damaging that was why I chose it. That was a long answer, wasn't it? But there you go. <laughs> but yeah, but it's very interesting to me. So as you tell your story, it sounds like the doctors weren't necessarily urging you in one direction or another. Did they let you make this decision all on your own? Or did you just take that into your own hands? When I first spoke to the surgeon, well, my GP as well, I said that I see this as a partnership and that I, you know, we are all part of the team and I, I told them that they are part of team Jeff and you may have seen I think on, on Facebook I also said people who support me were part of team Jeff and that's why I saw it I want to stay in charge of the process I will make the decision so I went in with that mindset to begin with and that as you mentioned before is very important because it allows you to maintain a level of control over what happens well I can't control the skill of the surgeon I can research the surgeon that mm -hmm. I'm going to have and find one who is skilled. Yep. While I can control the actual operation, I can choose the sort of operation I want and discuss with them how it might be. The surgeon I chose referred me to a, a radiologist and I had a discussion with the radiologist, having pretty much made up my mind already, but I was open to let's have a chat. And my surgeon also wanted me to have a chat to decide whether radiotherapy and chemotherapy would be something that I'd want to do. It just confirmed for me that it wasn't something I would want to do. But yes, there's certainly no pushing me into any particular direction other than my GP saying, you will need to do something about it because with a raised PSA and the Gleason scale, your option is either do something about it or you will die. So yeah. That's, if you, that's, that's not, pretty pressing. Yeah, it's just giving you information. Right. <laughs> just information. Yeah. I think our listeners might be interested in knowing that your surgery date was November 30th. Is that what you told me? That's right. November 30th. And when were you back at work? I was back at work four days after the surgery. 
that was just phenomenal to me to even think that you could possibly be back to work that soon. What did you do to prepare yourself for that surgery physically as well as mentally, Jeff? The first thing was the the research because I wanted to find out if this is genuinely a partnership between me and the surgeon. And I, I that's what I put to him. And he said, that's what I want from the people I work with was what I could do. And what I could do was a, was a number of things. First and foremost was get myself fit. Luckily, I was already fit, but do more work to get myself fit and to reduce my weight as much as I possibly could. And the reason for that is that we have, all of us have around our internal organs, uh, something we call visceral fat. And visceral fat is a yellowish material that just surrounds all of the organs inside our body. You can have a lot of visceral fat and that can make the surgeon's job very difficult. So if you can get yourself as fit as you can and and be as lean as you possibly can, that minimizes the visceral fat. You'll never get rid of it entirely, and the, the aim isn't to do that, but we want to keep that to a minimum. That was all part of the research, and I was running. I was running um, six, six to seven Ks a day to make sure that I was as fit and as lean as I could be. I was doing high-intensity intensity interval training every morning, plus in between, continuing with work, So I continued counselling people and doing my consulting work because that kept my mind occupied and I felt good. It meets my love and belonging needs and power needs to keep working with people and keep getting good results. I love seeing people being able to turn their lives around. So that looked after me really well mentally. The other thing, Kim, I did was um, discover something called Kegel exercises Women know all about those. Women know all about that. Um, Those are a little bit different, but still essentially the same thing. For those who don't know, for bladder control, we have basically two valves. One sits right at the base of the bladder. The other sits at the base of basically of our pelvis. And it's a band of muscles that sit underneath all of the organs that, that sit there. That can be damaged, as women know, with childbirth. And just with age, it weakens. It does for men as well. But Kegel exercise is a fairly easy thing to do. Once you know how to do them, what's hard is to learn how to do them. For males, I I can't speak for how women learn how to do them. But for males, it's about learning how to contract the muscles inside. And the the, um, particular muscles are very small. The pelvic muscles are quite small and difficult to isolate in your mind. The technique basically is to imagine drawing your penis back up into your body and clenching your anus at the same time. As as the uh, physiotherapist told me, it's about holding a fart in, if you'll excuse the, the term. And learning to do those two things in sequence and at the same time, which is a little bit trickier than it sounds. But I had a bit of fun learning how to do them. You're a, a Kegel master now. Yeah, I have even more fun describing them to people because we always get a laugh. But once you've mastered them, it's just a matter of doing those contractions regularly during the day. You can't overdo them. You've got to be careful not to overdo them because because they're such small muscles, you can actually tire them out, weaken them by strengthening them too much, by exercising them too much. It's so important for a male is because, and, and I'll have to describe this in words, for a male, you have the bladder sitting let's say above where the prostate is, 
The prostate is a gland that sits directly underneath the bladder, but almost connects with it. So when you have surgery, and even with radiation therapy, you destroy the valve that sits underneath the bladder. It's very rare that that valve doesn't get damaged. So that means you have no control to stop urine leaving the, the bladder from the bladder valve. That's gone. When they take the prostate out, they then take the urinary tract and reconnect it less the prostate. What that means is that it's shortened. To do that, you also have to remove, for, again, for a male, you, you have to remove the seminal ducts. So it means that from the testes, the, sem, the ducts that carry the seminal fluid into the prostate, disconnected, and the uh, prostate is actually removed all of that then connects and the only thing you now have in place to hold urine in place and prevent leakage incontinence is pelvic muscles. The Kegel exercises allow you to strengthen that so they take the place of the valve up on the bladder. That was the main thing in preparing myself is physically get fit, minimize weight, practice the Kegel exercises Mentally, it was to know what my body, how my body operates. And as you can probably tell from my description, I've learned a lot. Yeah. I didn't know any of that before right. November 30, <laughs> but I've learned a lot since then. And understand how your body works so that you stay in charge. You can understand and negotiate the best outcomes with the people who are working with you. I like that. It's amazing when there's something wrong with our bodies, the things that we learn, if we're of the mind to learn them, because we don't have any reason to know any of that until there's a problem. And then all of a sudden, it's really important to know as much as you can. Absolutely. So what's your journey been like since the surgery, Jeff? Okay. So as you mentioned, uh, November 30, I had the, the surgery. It was a long surgery. I went in at uh, 20 past 12 and I came out at seven o'clock at night. So that's a, a pretty significant surgery. I don't remember much about it. And I'm very, very grateful for that. <laughs> but I do remember the following day, uh, really starting that night, experiencing some excruciating pain, which had nothing to do with the surgery directly. Interestingly, when they operate on you, they actually insert a whole lot of gas into your body, inflate your abdomen. And what that led to, and I think you, you led, you were showing your shoulders there. Yeah, pain I know that pain. Yep. It's horrible. It is a horrible pain. It was yeah, it is. Than- and you don't expect it at all. It's like, no. why do my shoulders hurt? <laughs> and they really hurt. That's, that's just the gas trying to escape your body. They didn't tell me about that one. So I was, and I hadn't, I hadn't come across that in my research. So that was a bit of a surprise, but it didn't last long. I think it was 24 hours or something that that lasted. So the next day I was up and walking, carrying my uh, drips on the stand and uh, you know, like Banquo's ghost moving down the corridors <laughs> of the hospital, wandering whenever I could. So I was up and walking as much as I possibly could because there's a number of reasons. It helps with the healing process, but also it prevents blood clots in the leg. And that's a real issue. For three weeks after the surgery, I had to inject myself with anti-clotting agencies Within two days, I think the Tuesday, uh, the Wednesday morning, I left at 10 o'clock. I was discharged from the hospital. I'd done everything I needed to do, been get up and walking, behaved as though I wanted to be out of the hospital, and I certainly did. 
and headed home. And it was the next day that I had my first counselling session. That Because we were on lockdown for coronavirus, all of my sessions were online at that time. So that made it pretty easy, particularly since I, I had a catheter and a bag that was tied to my leg to walk around with. But I decided, Kim, that I, I wanted to keep active. So I started walking from the Thursday, not the Wednesday, because I'd had the drive home, but from the Thursday. And at first it was just around the block. The catheter was in for two weeks. By the end of the two weeks, I was walking five kilometers a day. And again, that's about helping the body to heal, but also psychologically, because as you know, we produce endorphins and oxytocins when we walk, um, when we connect into the environment and the area around us. And I was walking with my lovely wife, Deb. So we had a close conversation and supporting each other whilst that was happening. And it no doubt makes a huge difference to the way that your body heals. I did not want to just be a victim laying there waiting for it to heal. I wanted to always remain active. On the uh, uh, exactly two weeks, Monday the 14th, I think it was, of December, I had the catheter removed. And from that point on, I have to deal with incontinence. And that will be there for some time. But it started off with me needing to wear fairly robust adult diapers, we'll call them for want of a better term. They called them pull-ups here, but it kind of sounds like little, little kid stuff. But I only needed them for a couple of days. And because I'd done my Kegel exercises and recommenced the Kegel exercises, immediately the catheter was taken out. Within two weeks, I was able to get to the point where I don't need to wear any material at night. So I can go the night without wearing anything and I leak a tiny bit during the day. I'm down to about three mil unless I go for a walk or a run. Oh, um, a run. Yeah, I could see that. Run, it up. You're uh, bouncing. So when I, yeah, the bouncing of running. But I've researched that and there's a, you can run sort of, they call it in a neutral position, sort of leaning forward, smaller steps, and you can minimize that. So I've gone from probably a, around 140, 150 mil a day down to three mil a day with about, if you don't count the run, but the run, my latest was uh, lost only 18 mil. So within a very short period of time, I am regaining continence. Now, nobody knows for sure how long that will take, but your involvement in doing the exercises prior to uh, surgery and of course afterwards and being assiduous in continuing to do that's really important. Fitness wise, I'm now back to running 6K a day and I'm not, doing the, yeah, I'm not doing the high intensity interval training because there's a fair bit of bouncing and inside there's still healing to take place. So I'm not allowed to lift anything heavy, including my own body weight just yet. But I figure the running's enough for now and I'll get back to the weight bearing exercises and, and high intensity exercises maybe in about another two weeks. So that's been the, the journey, um, and it's also been one of letting people know. I've formed a blog post, which I've been putting out, explaining what's been happening to me, and you know, not telling people that that will be the same for them, but just showing them there is and are things that you can do. Well, I am always amazed and 
respectful of people who've been through something like this that are willing to talk about it because it seems like so many people keep those kind of things personal, private. They don't like to share it. And then the rest of us don't know anything about it. And this is a journey that I'm sure there's been many other people who've been on this same journey. My mother was married to a man who had prostate cancer. I don't know what he did about it. I think he had surgery. I don't really know because certainly not something he was going to talk to me about. It's just a part of living, right? We all have things that happen. And if you don't share it, how will other people know? I just think it's a, it's a heroic and it's a generous thing that you're doing to share this information with other people. And I'm really, I feel really honored that you are willing to do it here. So I want to say thank you for that. I'm also interested in, and I have to say, you know, I wrote a book about relationships and secrets of happy couples, it's called. And, and so you mentioned your lovely wife, Deb, and uh, I wonder how her support and her love has been helpful during this time for you. Yeah, it's, it's been um, pivotal. The best way I can say it is if you had to do it on your own, you could do it. But boy, does it make a difference having someone who really cares about you in your corner supporting you. It's huge. Every step of the way, she's been careful to ask me what support would look like, what the support I need would look like. And we've negotiated how she can give that in a way that obviously is good for her as well. So she's joined a partner's prostate support group. I'm not surprised, but she's ended up supporting them more than they supported her. Yeah. But that's often the case. Through the surgery, she's asked me, do you want me to come to interviews with doctors and so on? Uh, I will if you want me to. I also won't if you're quite happy to go on your own. We've talked about the options. The decision, while she said very much was up to me, it was my body, it was a shared decision and we, we discussed the options and what the impact would be for each of us. And certainly if I'd chosen radiation therapy and chemotherapy, there would have been a long period of time where I'd be ill because of the effects of the therapy. We talked about the effects that would have on both our business, but also our relationship and you know, ability to do things together. So it was very much a joint decision, but still final call was mine. And she very much stuck by that. She also informed herself, and that's been huge because if you have someone who has the information you have, it's immensely supporting to be able to just talk to them about what's going on for you in a factual information way so that you're on the same page. And that's been really important that she's been prepared to do that. Physically assuring me and reassuring me that the fact that I would, was now prostate-less I'm not a stateless person. I'm a prostateless person. <laughs> so now that I'm a prostateless person, that that doesn't change the essentials of our relationship. It does change our sexual relationship, which I'll talk about in just a minute, because it's all part of that support. But it certainly doesn't change the essence of the relationship. It remains strong. If anything, it's, it's stronger. For um, going through this together. Yeah. Yeah, we chose to do it together and support each other in the, in the process. She has, as I said, taken the lead from me and has always been prepared to look at what she could do to support me. But in turn, she's been outspoken about when I needed to support her because she's going through something as well. When you were the partner, I mean, you would know this yourself from your own experience. You want to support your partner, but you actually need some support yourself. 
So I've been able to be supportive of her as well. And if she's wanted time alone to think or to be able to, I haven't insisted that she be around all the time. If anything, I've said, you need to be off doing the things that nurture your needs as well, because that's how you'll give best to me. She's understood that and been able to be extremely giving. One of the prime things of support, though, that a woman can give, or a, I, I shouldn't just say a woman because it might be a same-sex partner, but when you go through this, you are going to become incontinent, not might, you will. So understanding that and supporting that is very important. But you will also become unable to have an erection. I may never be able to have an erection again, which means that penetrative sex might be out forever. No one knows that. But accepting that early in the piece and not beating into that belief that the only way you can have a, a healthy sexual relationship is with penetrative sex and accepting that is very important. We understand and we're able to have and have had, even since the surgery, a healthy sexual relationship. I'm very pleased to say that I had my first orgasm on Christmas morning. Uh, well, congratulations. You. <laughs> Your thank first you. post-surgery, I hope. Post-surgery, that's right. Yeah, I must clarify that. But that was <laughs> without being able to have an erection at all. It meant we had to find other ways. And, my, you know, my wife needed to be supportive of that and was willing and happy to do that. And it meant that we were, we were able to have and continue to have a healthy sexual life not based around, you know, the concerns of manhood being tied up with being able to have an erection. I may be able to do that later on, but do you see it's no longer an issue because I have a supportive partner who's not making it an issue. Yeah, that is a truly beautiful thing. Yeah. What would you say, just curious, to someone who's been through what you've been through that doesn't have a supportive partner? It is important to have people around you that you want, uh, I call them Team Jeff, you need to have your team around you. You need to, if you have a partner and they're not supportive, you need to understand that that's because they have a particular picture of how the relationship should be and their place in it. And if they're not supportive, it's probably because they're fearful that their needs are not going to be met in that relationship in the future. It's about helping them form a different picture to say, yes, there are things that will be different, but they don't have to be worse. They're just different. And the more that we can help our partners understand that picture and be patient with them as well, it can't be all about me. The more reassured they'll be, the more comfortable they'll be, the more likely they'll be if we stay loving and warm and caring to maybe take on that new picture and go, well, okay, this is new for me, but I'm prepared to give this a go and become that supportive partner. If you have no partner at all, you will need to find people that you can have those conversations with and that can support you in that process. But certainly I'm talking now, if you've got a partner who is not supportive, it's not generally, I would say it's not because they don't care. It's because they just don't know how to go about meeting their own needs and they're in turmoil themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that your willingness to accept the situation without letting it get all caught up in manhood and all of that stuff really helped move that situation forward. I know other people who have done that, you know, if they can't have penetrative sex, like you say, they don't feel that they have any value and worth anymore. 
Um, And there's so much more to a person than that. And there's other ways, as you've found, to be creative and to maintain sexual relationships. So I think that is really hopeful. And thank you so much for sharing that, Jeff. How much do you think your knowledge of choice theory has been instrumental in this whole situation? I think it's pivotal. It's interesting. And I would say not just my knowledge, but Deb's knowledge as well. If I didn't, I wouldn't know things like I have a quality world picture. My quality world picture prior to this is that I'm not incontinent and I don't leak into my underpants. I've got to let go of that quality world picture. That's got to go. And a new quality world picture has to replace it. And only I can do that. I have to be able to figure out what might be a new picture that it's satisfying for me. If you didn't know that and you held on to that old quality world picture that is well, you're not incontinent, you can have erections, nothing's changed, you're going to be permanently miserable and permanently depressed because you're never going to get that quality world picture back. Certainly not in the short term and quite possibly never at all. It's changed forever. Once you have a a prostate removed, once you have prostate cancer, that, that has changed forever and we need to find a new picture. Now, I knew that, not because I'm any better than anyone else, because I was fortunate enough to come across Dr. Glass's work years ago and decades ago, actually, and because I was able to practice that in my life and share it with other people professionally, I just moved on to that. It's like uh, I was talking about the Kegel exercises and developing those pelvic floor muscles so they become automatic and you don't have to think about them all the time. That's how it is for me with changing my quality world picture, going, I can't be that person or I can't do that thing anymore. You know what? There's other things I can do and that's okay. I think also understanding the needs. If you don't understand the needs, you're not going to form a very successful quality world picture. It'll be hit and miss. You can do it, but once you understand the needs, you can consciously go about creating a new picture And of course, if you've maintained your relationship, you do that in concert. So you form a quality world picture, a new way of being together that actually nurtures and develops the relationship even more than it was before. I also think that knowing that anxiousing, stressing are signs that my perception is that my needs are under threat was pivotal because as soon as I started to feel any level of anxiety at all, I didn't try to calm myself down. I just went, well, that's interesting. I wonder what need that's about and what will I do to deal with that need, whether that be survival, whether that be love and belonging, whether that be freedom, whatever it might be, what will I do? And of course, as soon as you take action, you're on the front wheels of the car, glasses, behavioral car for those who who don't know that, although I'm sure most people who've listened to your podcast will have some understanding of that. You can get on the front wheels and you're taking control and immediately you start to feel better. My understanding of choice theory and my involvement in it over the years has been pivotal. The other bit that I think, and and you alluded to it earlier, you heal faster. Yeah. The reality is that how we think and how we act, I know, will impact directly on both how I feel emotionally, psychologically, but also my physiology. And I know that you heal faster. You you mentioned that when you talked about your ankle. And there is no doubt, as far as I'm concerned, the jury's back in. 
choice theory means if we understand it and we practice it in what we're doing, we will heal faster. We will heal better. We will get the best physical result we possibly can amongst all the other benefits. So pivotal. And I've just got to say what's not to like about it. I agree. (laughs) We're kindred spirits on that score for sure. So Jeff, what about the future? What are your plans? So my plans are, uh, as of yesterday, I, as you said, a month and a half after surgery, I've just released a, a book on leadership about using lead management approach. So that's only just released on um, Kindle as an ebook yesterday. It's, Congratulations. Uh, how, to, yeah, how to become a high quality leader. And now I'm trying to nut out how to turn it into the paperback edition so people can do that. But I'm still learning and growing and having fun. I'm still working. Kim, I'll work until my mind can't manage working anymore because I actually love it so much. It's not that I have to, but it's because I enjoy it so much. So certainly the plan is, is to continue that. I know that in the future, I may never be able to operate effectively or regain full erections or even full continence, but I'm okay about that. I accept that. I have a new quality world picture about how that might look and that will pan out in the future. Deb is working with me on choicetheory.org so that we're putting our online courses up. So life is chock-a-block full and so much fun. What's not to like? There are a couple of things in the future that I have to deal with. On the 19th, I will have another PSA test. They don't know for sure after removing the prostate whether or not any of the cancer has escaped into the body. The pathology showed no evidence of it escaping the encapsulation of the prostate gland. However, the only way to know for sure is if you get the next PSA result. And what we're looking for is that that drops from 8.5 back down to hopefully zero, but at least minimal. If it has, I'm looking good. If it hasn't, then I need further treatment. And uh, I will know that option. It's an option. I've got that option because I chose the surgery to start with. That's what's in the future. Am I worried about that? Do I look worried? Not in the least. No, I'm not worried about it. I will deal with it. If the result is that it hasn't dropped sufficiently, indicates there is still cancer in the body from the uh, prostate, then I'll treat it and I will follow chemotherapy to do that. I heartily believe that with my knowledge of choice theory and the support of my lovely wife, Deb, Team Jeff, the people around me, I'll get on top of that and I'm going to beat it as well. But you know what? If I don't, the worst thing that can happen is I will die as well as I can. It sounds funny saying it here, but you can see, you can see me, you know, I'm I'm not just casting a line here. If the worst case came to worse and I couldn't and didn't manage to survive this, I will die the best death that I can. It's interesting because my father had prostate cancer and he died a miserable death. It was just awful. So I know that that's a possibility, but I also know how you approach it will make a big difference to how it impacts That's my worst case scenario, Kim. I have no intentions of going there. (laughs) The best case scenario is come January 19th, my PSA is somewhere near zero and I'm looking good for a full and rich life from now on. 
Well, I certainly hope so. And my money's on you if I were a betting person. So (laughs) I wish you the best on the 19th. And I really want to thank you so much for being here with me and sharing this information with our audience. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this interview with Jeff was recorded in January and only posted now. I recently caught up with Jeff to learn that his PSA levels are undetectable. He was quick to point out that isn't a guarantee he's cured, but it does indicate that he's in remission at this stage. He's running 6K a day and engaging in high-intensity interval training exercise each morning. He's also working full-time and loving getting the online side of his business up and running. Such fabulous news. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be discussing post-traumatic glow. I'm looking forward to it talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.